I never want to be pacified. I don't want to be calmed down. I don't want to be soothed in any way. I want to be emotionally involved. I want to be, I want the music to get into my head and my, and my, and, and my body and, and leave me changed. There are over 31 billion seconds in a year. How many of those precious seconds do you spend listening to music, binging the latest series, reading poetry, consuming art and media on a broader scale? In this series, I, Stefano Flavoni, am joined by the top artists of our time to discuss the method of our madness. As Miles Davis once said, don't play what's there, play what's not. The Metropolitan Opera, La Scala, San Francisco Opera, Paris Opera, Bavarian Staatsoper, Hamburg Staatsoper, Deutsche Oper Berlin, San Francisco Symphony, Chicago Symphony, the Cleveland Orchestra, LA Phil, the LSO. If you had another hour, I could continue the list of companies and orchestras Stuart Skelton has sung with. Stuart is a person whose artistry I've held on this incredible pedestal for as far back as I can remember. And I can also attest firsthand that he is a truly brilliant mind, and he's a good friend. Well, how are you doing? How's Spain treating Good, you? Good, man. Well, we just literally, uh, in the last uh, 10 minutes, got the official word that we are allowed to open Fidelia tomorrow. Fantastic. Congratulations. So this, is, this is good news. Well, we've been waiting for the um, the health department here at the, of the, of the particular province we're in, Asturias, to uh, make a decision about uh, theatres and bars and restaurants and those sorts of things. Um, and they they had a press conference at seven o'clock while we were all in the uh, Madame Butterfly uh, general rehearsal, um, just watching that uh, for a little bit. And the news came through, but we've just been officially informed that we're all going ahead uh, and that things should be able to open from tomorrow. So uh, it'll be good if this part of town doesn't have a lot of uh, industry and those sorts of things like Madrid does. So getting people to open I mean, the whole economy here is based on restaurants and coffee and and bars yeah and so i think it's been quite difficult for this part of town to uh I make can it imagine work. and i can so, relate too yeah it's been it's been really weird but it's it's been so strange to be walking around in spain anywhere and have it be empty <laughs> yeah it's it, well we we chatted a couple months into the quarantine and then a couple That's months right. after that yeah it's it's been a rough year it's been a very very strange year i'll give you that it really has been quite strange you doing okay you, yeah mate yeah emotionally... i mean yeah emotionally you know there are the ups and downs 
you know, as you'd expect. But at the end of the day, the 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 only one of the consolations is, particularly in this industry, is that apart, unless you're Anna Netrebko uh, or Jonas Kaufmann, we're all pretty much in the same place. Yeah. So definitely. you know, it's one of those things that you just like, you know, yes, it's awful, but it's awful for everyone. Um, and there is an end. Yeah, whether it's in sight for everyone is is a separate issue, but there is an end to it. Um, and you know, I suspect for most people, there's an end in sight, and that's um, that's a really good thing. So you know, we'll get there. Well, as as we're speaking, vaccines have already started rolling out. Yep, exactly. They've certainly in the UK, they've already started administering vaccines to those who are. Uh, most at risk, I guess, the elderly and people with with other comorbidity conditions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think twenty twenty one summer, maybe the 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 next season. Hopefully, hopefully. I mean, knock on wood. We're yeah, we're gonna start rolling back into where we were, you know, in February. God willing. I think I think it'll happen. Probably, certainly, some places will happen before that. Uh, I think things like uh, Aix-en-Provence, which starts in May of next year, will certainly be in a position to to make things happen <clears throat> because they will have had, um, well, we will have had the best part of six months of uh, vaccinations and we'll know how effective the vaccine, vaccine is in the real world rather than the laboratory, which is also, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Uh, and, you know, and we'll know, we'll have a certain to a certain extent, we'll have an idea of, of, of uh, what the theatres can get away with in terms of numbers in the audience and what they, mm-hmm. what they have to have and what they can live with. And I think there are two different, they are two different things. Well, I'm curious. You've spent your whole life on stage. Yeah. Do you think maybe there's an alternative performance format that that could function? I hope not. That's. That's what I assumed you would say, but you know, a lot of people are thinking, trying to think creatively. Sure, is there any authenticity in the sort of Zoom performance, um, in the broadcast without an well, audience? Look, I think there is authenticity because it's live, for one of a better description. The, the singers are singing uh, like it's a live performance. The performers are performing like it's a live performance. So I think that is uh, it's a it's as good a substitute as we'll get until such time as we don't need the substitute anymore. Um, I do worry that the, 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 the bombardment of constant digital content, um, you know, every week, somebody different from somewhere new, you know, from, from a glamorous location more often than not, I think sets uh, up a slightly false equivalence for the live experience for the audience and i don't know that long term you can have both of them happening at the same time because at some point the digital thing for for people who can't or don't want to get out is is a great alternative but i don't want it to start cutting the lunch of 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 um of live performance i don't want live performance to become something that people just couldn't be bothered with because the digital version's not bad. Exactly. You know? And and I think that's a that that's a risk that we run. Definitely. And there's this you know, I've talked with several people about this, the the spiritual, the ritualistic aspect of going to performance or performing 
with an audience present. Absolutely. I mean, there is a, there's a, and there's a communal aspect about that. There's a community exactly that you don't get as, 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 as well subscribed as uh, the digital content may or may not be. There's absolutely no sense of community because you can sit literally in a room by yourself with his headphones on in the dark and not know anyone else who's listening and not feel that physical visceral hum of an audience even when they're silent there's a physical vibration that goes on and you don't get that in the as as, as good as this digital facsimile is and it's spectacular it doesn't really reproduce the live experience and the community and as you say the ritualistic uh, portion of that where people come to the temple to worship wherever it is that whatever temple you go to um to sit in a, in a communal space and experience the theater at the same time live i yeah the digital version is is wonderful in the in the interim but i don't want i would hate to think that the digital thing becomes so easy to do and so easy to rely on that it becomes the substitute totally you're working on Fidelio right now. Yes, and I am. Th this is a a work I love so much. Um, it has such a strange, dramatic structure. I mean, it's sort of the into the woods effect where Act One, Act Two, uh, it's night and day. I I wanted to know because with your experience of of Floristan, what's your take on the relevance of Fidelio today? Because we've had a politically charged 2020 on so many fronts. Uh, where do you think this sits in our repertoire, in our society? How, how do you feel approaching a role like Floristan that you've done so many times? Well, I think, I, I, you know, I, I honestly think that, I, I know that, that dramatically or at least structurally, um, Fidelio can be sometimes a little hard to approach. Um, but you've also, I mean, like, it's like so many things. I mean, you've got to see it as a product of its time, uh, when the rescue opera was a thing, you know, um, and you think about, um, a, a lot has been written, uh, about Beethoven in his 250th year, um, and some stuff. You know, it's particularly, I thought that some of the stuff that's been written has been really drawing a very, very, very long bow. Um, and, and, and particularly, you know, comparing Beethoven in 1800 odd and, and the, 20, the 21st century um, aesthetic and, and the way we look at the world and trying to, to, to draw some sort of moral equivalence between the two and having Beethoven come out poorly at the other end, I think is... To be honest, at the end of the day, it really is a bit of a waste of academic energy, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't quite understand why anyone would, would even try to do that, let alone think it was a good idea. But some people have, and I guess they have to um, follow their own um, path on that. But I think the most interesting part about it is that you look at Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and you look at, at, at Fidelio, uh, it was all it's all about brotherhood Bruderschaft, and you know and and nicht dieser Turner you know sondern lass uns angenehmer anstimmen you know it's it's there's something about beethoven's I mean, we know the the famous story about him 
uh, angrily crossing out the dedication to Bonaparte uh, for the Eroica after he declared himself emperor. There was a so Beethoven wore, didn't wear his politics lightly, and his politics was about the brotherhood, what we have in common, not what sets us apart, not what divides us, but what unites us. And I think that message right now in, in the politically charged arena of 2020, not only the United States, but you know, uh, the European Union and Turkey and the European Union and Brexit, uh, and the United Kingdom within Brexit between Scotland and, and, and England and, and just, you know, that sort of thing is that everybody on both sides of the political fence seem to want to point up only those things that make us different, why the other is different, why that other is the other, as opposed to why and how we work towards being not the other, but being a unified uh, mankind and a unified brotherhood and sisterhood. Um, uh, and I don't think anybody really is doing a very good job of that right now. And I think the, the notion of Fidelio, of rescuing somebody from, uh, yeah, rescuing the sacrifice that Leonora has gone through to rescue her husband from the tyrant's prison is, a, is an important message about the fact that we're going to have to we we have to sacrifice to keep the 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 concept of of being one uh, one people one I mean, even if you even if you decide and and I'm, and I'm not talking about world kind of world stuff but if you take the take the United States you know the whole concept of the United States was founded on one people under God. Now your God might, might differ from mine and, you know, our God will differ, differ from someone else's, but the American experiment is going a bit haywire at the moment because both sides just point at the other side and call them liars and idiots and morons and evil. And nobody, nobody wins at that argument. Nobody wins that argument because the more you do that, the more the people who are being called evil will ignore the people who are calling them evil and it won't get us anywhere. I just, I, and it's, I find that most dispiriting. And I think the message of Fidelio is that we're going to have to sacrifice things to get ourselves from out of the tyranny of I'm on one side, the person on the other side who disagrees with me, not only do they need to agree with me, but if they disagree with me, they need to shut up and never be heard again. And I think that's a very, very, very dangerous road to go down. Definitely. I mean, Beethoven 9, in a, in a very prescient way, is really one of the first anti-racist works, if you really think about it, because who were the targets of racist commentary in art at the time? It's, you know, Edward Said wrote Orientalism. It's the yeah. Turks, mainly. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that Beethoven, immediately after the word God, breaks into Turkish Janissary music... Well, that's he was the thing. Not being, yeah, he wasn't subtle about it at all. No, he really wasn't. I mean, that whole the whole opening of that tenor solo is is it's it's Turkish janissary coming from a distance, and it's not coming in. It's not coming with words of war. It's coming with words of joy. Fro, fro visa nazonnen. You know, it's it's he uses uh, that 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 Turkish janissary uh, whole thing. Bada bada. To but he come but they come not with words of war or words of conquest or word, words of of uh, of uh, attacking but they come with words of fro exactly. like like a hero 
hero held some um uh, um what is it um like a like a hero bringing peace you know and i think that's super and super important you know and i and i we seem to have somewhere along the way lost that and i don't quite know when i mean well i I look there are probably signposts um but i think um beethoven was well he said you know wherever your wings are spread let there be um all men and women will be brothers and sisters um wherever your wings your gentle wings unfurl there's nowhere that that doesn't include exactly exactly there's an idealism in beethoven that yeah i think we're craving right now it's spiritual food regardless of the secularization of 2020 but it's we need this we need it fidelio and the ninth and everything in between yeah i know i totally agree i mean one of the the most interesting things is that 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 classical period going into uh early romanticism uh you know coming from the 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 sturm und drang of of beethoven and and Schubert and Schumann, who came not long after that, you know, um, that's that that wild Byronic notion of the Romantic, who lived for idealism, who lived for an ideal, who were they were trying to encapsulate in their words or their poetry or their music, Caspar uh, David Friedrich, you know, kind of trying to encapsulate in in a, in a, in, a, in an image some sort of ideal. And I think um, the ideal, the whole concept of, of reaching for ideals has been supplanted by the reaching for and the supporting of my tribe, even if I think my tribe is doing some stuff that might be unconscionable because it's my tribe, I have to support them. doesn't matter how many mistakes my tribe are making. Uh, and there's there's a real lack of ideals now. It's, 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 it's all about... It's, I mean, I'd love to say it was even all about pragmatism, and I don't think it is anymore. I literally think it's about making sure that your side makes gets to tell the other side that they're all either idiots or, or evil, and I and I just think that's a a terrible a terrible way to go about it. Ideology over idealism. Yeah, I agree. So, in speaking of ideals, I don't think we could go more than fifteen minutes without talking about someone we've talked extensively about. Uh, Wagner. Yes. <laughs> uh, we've spent many hours talking Wagner together. And, well, first off, did you pick up Alex Ross's new book, Wagnerism? I have not. Yes, no. I'm I'm partway through it. It's it's pretty great. It's pretty great. It's... Well, I mean, The Rest of Noise was a terrific book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Really knows what he's talking about. So yeah. well-researched. But Wagner is someone whose political affiliations today maybe are a bit charged, especially with, uh, you think, Antifa uh, and other protest or anti-establishment work being done, both on the ground and behind the scenes. Yeah, of course. Wagner, obviously, with the anti-Semitic scar on his character, but... I'm curious what your thoughts are today compared to maybe when you started singing Wagner. How, how does he as a person fit into your 
approach to his music to music in general because you do a lot of wagner yeah i do um i think one of the things i know i know stephen fry has spoken about this before uh one of the things i think you have to be able to do with wagner at some level is to separate his work of genius his works of genius and the somewhat malignant nature of the man himself <laughs> um uh or and if you can't separate those then don't be involved with it i think is the is the is the it is the best way to do that i mean if, if if and i understand why people can't i totally understand if there are people who are unable to do that um then and i completely sympathize but i think you need to be able to if you're going to sing a lot of his work and 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 be steeped in his musical language you need to try and separate his non-musical language from his musical language because his non-musical language really is says some pretty abhorrent things and he was unapologetic about it and i guess the only advantage is to a certain extent that it was by and large quite poorly written um if we can say that now i i, I might get, i know we'll get in trouble i'll get in trouble for saying that but so please send all complaints <laughs> don't tell a market yeah, yeah don't exactly. don't tell the by right marketing team yeah I, I yeah it's it's one of those things none of the none of it's all that well written uh, and he does have some pretty objectionable things to say but he had some pretty objectionable things to say in light of the fact that that being anti-semitic at the time wasn't particularly heinous um you know i mean uh how, how when was uh jacques emile zola was what the late 1800s yeah exactly and it was it wasn't till jacques that really that became with the, the dreyfus uh, affair didn't really become a, a thing for people people being anti-semitic was was in 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 certainly in in, in western europe pretty much standard fare um quite unfortunately yeah yeah, and, uh, yeah i mean and and, and 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 atrociously so but that's that's how it was uh so i i really do try to separate uh the man from his creative genius uh because if you can't then i think it's probably very very difficult to justify ever performing him uh and there are those people who who can't do that and i understand and i would i would understand that they they, they can't really do that and that's f fine but to hear what he was saying with his music is to hear that part of Wagner that was that does transcend that that was somehow in some elemental way above some of the stuff that he got himself involved in and so you do like to think of or at least I like to think of there's some part of of that very complicated uh personality that very complicated man that was touched by your god of choice and was able to elevate his work his art well and extricate that from the very human and very con very twisted and conflicted part that was the human wagner into that part of wagner that transcended absolutely and you know we talk about you know gesamtkunstwerk you know the mm. total artwork but we don't quite as often talk about like wagner as the total artist yes because as dramatist obviously as composer but also as an inventor a, a, an entrepreneur 
I mean, so much of modern stage technology is indebted to Wagner, and there are books and books yeah. written on the subject. I mean, you've been in some pretty far out productions. And True enough. Regardless of one's position on on stage direction in a, in a post, let's say, nineteen seventy six world there's some really incredible stage magic going on that fully fully indebted to Wagner and the progression of stage technology that he initiated in his own right true so it's super super interesting to view it just outside the music as well and and we'll absolutely talk about the music because yeah I mean you and I are both deeply connected to this music whether we like it or not well true that's absolutely true Acting-wise, stagecraft-wise, uh, I'm curious what you think, because you've been on the ring machine. Yes. You've experienced basically the the forefront of theater technology at the highest level. How have productions been for you at the most strange, technologically advanced, most avant-garde? What's your experience with that? Um. Well... I actually I know that the ring the, the 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 machine particularly that particular production came in for some not lots but came in for some that got a, got a bit got a bit of stick from from the that, that those uh, Wagnerian attendees who really want to see uh, only the, the the most traditional of productions. Otto Schenk forever. Yeah, the Otto Schenk's kind of thing, you know, and and the Otto Schenk production is without question, absolutely stunning. I mean, there's not, that's For not sure. to try and take away from that. And I think that that's the Sheng, that Sheng production is the production I grew up with watching. So, and, and, and of course, the Wieland Wagner thing from, from Bayreuth in the 50s, you know, that, that, that very, very pared down, very, very simple, but very iconic um, uh, stagings. Um, but I think one of the things that people often... I don't think they forget. I think they choose to sort of put it in a little drawer somewhere and not draw it out, bring it out very much. Is that Wagner himself, when a stage technology didn't exist that he wanted for Bayreuth, he just invented it. Exactly. You know, I mean, exactly. So I down think, to the curtains. Yeah, I think Wagner really would have had had he had more things at his technology at his disposable at disposal at the time. He would have absolutely used them, and we know that by by him constantly lamenting that stage technology couldn't do what he wanted it to do, and when he could come up with a way to make it do that, he often did. So I think, yeah, the machine was a cantankerous beast when it first uh, made its debut in New York. It was a bit less reliable than I think anyone would have I would have wanted, and of course, you know. The, the really high performance machinery, you know, uh, and you're spending that sort of money even on expensive watches or expensive motor cars, you know, it's temperamental, and 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 we know that that's the case. So there was no reason for it not to be temperamental and a bit cantankerous when when it first when it first made its debut, but. Every time that's had an outing since then, it's been much smoother, much more reliable, much less noisy. You know, the kinks got ironed out. And I still think that it is, in terms of the marriage of massive stage technology and 
and the human element of of the singing and the orchestral stuff and and getting it all to work is an absolute crowning achievement. Now, that that won't make the people who don't like their production like it, and I and I get that. I think it's a spectacular production, and I really do like it. Um, uh, you know, I, I, and I've I've both watched it and been in it a lot. So it's it's a production that I think is truly truly spectacular. And I think now that it's a production that will that will be in rep at that house for some time, I think every time it gets another another run, it will be more and more um, reliable, and it'll just be much more seamless. I mean, let's not forget that both Pat, uh, Patricia Rose ring in Bayreuth and Gertz Friedrich's ring in Bayreuth were pilloried at the time. Exactly. And yet now we look at them and we think we, we everyone talks about the Chirot and Gertz Friedrich rings in Bayreuth as being groundbreaking and spectacularly wonderful productions, which of course they were at the time, but they were new things. So, and this was true of, of the production, uh, the, 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 the machine um, Robert Lepage production in New York. It was new. It, that sort of thing had not been done before. But, and I think over time, people will, like they always do, they will calm down about it and realise what a monumental achievement it is to get that absolute beast of a set to function successfully with very, very now, more frequently and more recently, with almost no hiccups. It's honestly, it's really an impressive thing. And, I, and I've, I've got to commend... Um, New York and the Metropolitan Opera for because they they did they did suffer the slings and arrows to quote um, um, Hamlet um, of outrageous fortune and I think they they wore, they weathered that storm really quite well and 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 stuck with it and they stuck with the production I think will in its in its time become one of the great iconic productions um, so you know. I, I've done lots of productions that have been much more in Wieland Wagner in, 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 in their scope. And they're also mind bendingly beautiful to watch. And I think some of the Wieland Wagner style of thing works really well for those. And we were talking earlier about the ritualistic nature of, of coming to see an opera. I think things like Tristan and Isolde and Parsifal have a real there's a ritual to them musically as well as the community that comes and sits and listens to it as well. So, you know, I think there are there are those those productions from the the Wieland Wagner productions from the fifties and sixties um, lend themselves, I think, more to the the less frenetic, the less uh, action packed uh, operas like Parsifal and Tristan and Isolde, um, and but these these productions that uh, have you know all singing all dancing lights and, and and projections and moving moving machinery and those sorts of things for a, for a ring cycle or for flying dutchman for instance where things are happening you know there's 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 lots of action and there's lots of things to 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 concentrate on there's trees and swords and spears and 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 you know, winged Valkyries riding horses, and that's the nature of that sort of that the, the things of that nature. So I think that machine has done 
it's done a it, it it really does help tell the story for what it's worth that's what I, at least that's what i think yeah i definitely think there's i mean listen when i was in high school and it came out i couldn't go see it live but i own the box set i still yep. do uh i still rewatch it um i'm curious you know talking about productions what's your sort of ideal production or rehearsal environment maybe what's your ideal stage director what are the questions they're asking you that you feel an appreciation for what's your ideal process in leading to either a new production or something that's new for you i don't know that there is a there's any one perfect director uh, because they're all we're all human um i i have loved working with david alden um uh, I've worked with John Copley, which I also loved. I, I loved working with um, Robert on on the the, the, the ring. Um, I've done Bob Wilson productions, and I know that 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 not everyone finds that uh, um, as much fun to do. I actually quite like working with with Bob Wilson productions, particularly with Bob himself, because there is a there's an there's an there's an aesthetic purity to it. Uh, I think the best directors uh, work with, and I, this is true of conductors as well. So I think we we can sort of throw this blanket over more than just stage directors. The best directors work with their cast and their conductor and and the the set that they and sets and costumes that they have, and they work out what those performers' strengths and weaknesses are, um, what things they really are super happy to do and have fun doing, the things that they don't, they genuinely feel uncomfortable about doing, uh, and direct them, the, the whole concept of person and regie, you know, directing the people you have to get the best out of them that serves the story, that serves the work, that serves the piece. And the, the really good directors and the really conduct, good conductors always, always do that. And Absolutely. I've been lucky to work with, with, with in both as stage directors and conductors. I've been lucky way more often than not to work with people who are interested to work with what you as a performer bring to the, bring to the table as opposed to how can you as the performer fit into their idea of what should be brought to the table. Absolutely. I mean, you see it so many times, it, uh, so many conductors, and I won't name names, obviously, but you can tell when they're conducting people, even in orchestras, you know, viewing the second oboe as an object instead of a person. You can tell the kind of music making that's happening. And the same thing happens even for the smallest bit parts on stage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, there's a, the directors that look, look at, you know, and then my good directors don't take very long. To size up what's yeah you know, their 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 cast um, in a in a rehearsal room, and they know how to work. Okay, what I what I need to work, what I need to do with this particular singer is this, and this singer maybe my approach to them is completely different, but working towards uh, a whole that really brings the director's vision as filtered through the performers uh, to fruition. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we're all on the same team at the end of the day, and we're all getting yeah. behind a certain work of art and the message that it can convey. 
Well, that's the thing. And I think the really great conductors and the really great stage directors are the ones who are dedicated to getting the story and the message across. The ones that are always a bit more difficult from an audience member's point of view and often um, from a performer's point of view are the directors who want to take whatever story they have but use the story they've been given to tell a story that they want to tell as opposed to the story that's that's there. And interestingly, as an audience member, I can almost always gauge what the performers who were performing thought of their director based on the direction of the show. Interesting. It's almost always the same. If you're having, tr if you're really struggling working with a particular director or a particular conductor, and at the end of the day, you end up just, f just for for making the rehearsal process more smooth, you end up just going along with what's required, even if you not necessarily agree with uh, what's required because you, you you don't think it's serving the piece as well. It's so generally, if the audience don't like a production particularly, it's almost. But across the board don't like it not like the small group of people who don't like something because it's not yeah. something that happened 25 years ago but generally if this production isn't all that popular I can guarantee you the performers didn't really like it either yeah i mean let's take Bayreuth for example because it's always it's always on full display yeah the thoughts on the productions i mean the most recent ring versus the most recent Parsifal. And granted, I didn't see the Ring live. I did see the most recent Parsifal live. And yep. I'm not sure if you're familiar with both of these productions. Yes, um, I am. But, okay, this most recent Parsifal, one of the most beautiful productions I've oh, seen yeah. of any opera. Ridiculous. It's, I mean, it sets it's, it's, it in a refugee yeah. camp. It's it's so palpable. Yeah. It's a terrific production. Yeah. And, and you know, it does... It does change elements of the story, but I think it's also elements that were there in the original work, just not explicitly stated as st sure. such. You know, absolutely. It's the the call against really organized religion and factionality, and that's exactly what we were talking about with Beethoven before. Mm -hmm. uh, and sure, Wagner didn't overtly say such things in Parsifal in so many words, but you have this sort of pagan Christianity that's presented. Yeah. Well, I mean, you certainly you, 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 it, 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 it presents ostensibly as a Christian-esque monastic lifestyle, but the character that does that acts on them most, and the, the character that that really always brings some sort of either healing or turmoil, is constantly being reinvented from generation to generation to generation, which is much more a Buddhist take on the world than any Absolutely. sort of Judeo-Christian uh, take on the world. Um, so, yeah, I think the the the, the sort of uh, pastiche uh, monastic Christianity with uh, what this one character who has lived through the ages and had different names and, you know, those Herodias sorts of things. Du, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Gundridge of Astu and Herodias und was noch, you know, and those sorts of things. This, this, this... And of course, not only that combined with uh, Wagner's inability to get away from the fact that 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 the woman has to subjugate herself at some point to uh, redeem the male of the opera. 
Um, and you know, Kundry is no exception. So there's there's Wagner's sort of little bit of um, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, his little bit of Wagnerist stuff in there as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that um, the 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 story of Parsifal is is that the 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 the, the single uh, you, you shall have no other gods but me kind of thing. It never really ends up being all that successful. Absolutely, exactly. You know, and I think exactly. Parsifal tells that story. So if if there are if there are parts of that concept, if there are parts of that philosophy that you can then take and run within a production that makes things explicit that maybe were implicit, then that's that. I mean, that's fine. You know, I have that's obviously part of the. You've got to understand that he was reading Schopenhauer at that point, and. You know, he'd, he'd been eternally vexed in his Bakuninist, um, anarcho-libertarian um, political leanings uh, that really had it, nothing had ever really come to fruition there. Um, so uh, I think that there, uh, you know, I think the best productions are always ones where the director comes in and works with his musicians and works with his uh, chief, his conductor and works with his uh, performers to best get everyone moving in in the right direction to make the, the the performances. And let's not forget, the really great directors never forget that we're in show business. As much as we sometimes uh, try to avoid that fact. That's a really, really important part of the really good ones. They also understand that we're in showbiz. And I think we're a rarefied, expensive in inverted commas elitist or elite version of showbiz but you know i i'm not sure that that's true but that's certainly a, a moniker that, that we get lumped with but we're in showbiz the show has to go on and the people have to want to come and see it again so i think the the, the best of them do do that uh, and i've been as i said earlier much more often than not have been lucky enough to work with people who have all of those attributes and qualities and and they work with each performer to get the best out of them and i think that's the the real challenge for great stage directors is get the best out of them out of everybody in the same way that the, the great conductors get the best out of every individual in the orchestra and every individual on stage and bring it to this this and polish it to this gleaming uh, glistening uh Gesamtkunstwerk whole in its entirety. You know, it becomes an it becomes an entire thing, and I think the the best of them um, do that by bringing all of these disparate strands and strings together, and um, making it a unified work that everyone feels proud to be part of and feels like they have made it happen. Maybe with the exception of the character Parsifal. I mean, let's let's look at your list: Siegmund, Floristan, Peter mm -hmm. Grimes, Lohengrin. There's there's this running theme of of this inner turmoil, and Parsifal, you know, the naive person coming into this new world where time and space sort of become one. What what draws you to these kinds of characters, these kinds of tortured souls? Is there something there? Is there a commonality? You think? Yes, absolutely. Because I, I I don't know why I don't know what it is, but I'm just 
awful at comedy on stage. I, I, I truly, that. I truly am the, just the most useless comedian on stage. Oh come on, you've had and me I, howling I, just I swear, in conversation. I, I swear to you, I, I, really? I know. I mean, when I'm when I'm a small group of people, yeah, at a dinner party or just sitting around having a, having a drink, you know, I'm I'm as funny as the next guy. At least I like to think I am. But on stage, I have absolutely no comic timing. I've got no absolutely no comic physicality whatsoever. I just don't do funny. What I do do or what I like to do or what I feel closest to and what I think <clears throat> and I don't know people can draw inferences from what I'm about to say all I like infer as much as you like. But I feel an affinity for those characters that are broken. Yeah. I, I yeah, find I accessing what you need to access as a performer to be a broken character, I find that very, very easy to do. I find accessing what you need to be funny on stage impossible. So people can, can people can infer yeah. that from that what they choose. <laughs> Listen, we won't put words in their mouths <laughs> or thoughts in their brains. No. Um, but one thing you've said to me and to others, but it's stuck with me, is Act 3 of Tristan, where you, you say that by the end of his monologue uh which goes on and yeah. it's a, a physical toil you have to feel tristan's soul literally dripping onto the floor from his yeah, body i do and that's something that has stuck with me in in approaching act three see i've, I've got to be honest with you i think the 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 forspiel to act three is the is the is the sonic equivalent of hearing his life force seep out of him so much so so much so. And it, it ties back to the Wesendonklieder where it comes from too. Yep. That in, in, in the in the in the in the in the force builder Tristan, that B flat minor with that added sixth resolving to F minor. And then it's those those high those high strings going off in that 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 sort of slightly slightly strange uh, a little bit twist it's almost a fanfare. It's almost fanfare. On the way up, but it's because it's a whole series of tri. There's a whole lot of tritone in there. It's not quite uh, some sort of angelic fanfare. It's it's a little bit like the beginning of Act Four of Traviata, but a little bit skewed, Definitely. you know. And it just and it, and and that's that. He, so you feel that the weight, the weight of of his physical form just literally grinding to a halt, and you hear the transcendence that will come in ninety minutes from now. Uh, as she's as Isolde begins the Liebestod, you hear the transcendence in those high strings going off into that into the ether, going in opposite directions at the same time, and and that's for me is that's that is what you you lie on stage or you sit on stage, whatever production it is that you're in. <clears throat> More often than not, you're in a hospital bed these days, <laughs> and you and you hear that start to play, and you feel. Like you do in um, uh, in in in, in Nine, you hear the heartbeat slow down. That bump bump, you literally feel it slow down, and 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 stop. You know, and so when he sings is older, that's he's he's free. You know, he's been set free from the shackles of the earth, and we hear that right at the beginning in that in that vorspiel, those those high strings, then they go off into uh, the ether and that the English horn, yeah, the the uh, viola at least, you know, the shepherd uh, call, 
yeah, the shepherd call. Um, and you hear that viola, that that never that that, that melody that never really s- sort of settles on any sort of tonality. It's 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 the prescient nature of of Tristan and Isolde's souls being freed from their mortal constraints. Exactly. I mean, for me, that it's sort of like this antimatter uh, opposite of of the Act One Prelude of Pasifal. Yep. Because Pasifal, it, it sort of constructs the opera from the A flat major triad solo instrument, you know, solely within the section. Yep. And then it, it constructs this whole world. And in Tristan, it, it sort of evaporates the entire world that's been on stage for the past three hours. Yeah, exactly. No, I totally agree. And I and I think that the, the Briton, uh, in his way, does exactly that with Grimes's last scene in Grimes. I, 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 I don't call it the mad scene because I have a distinct theory about that. I don't think he goes mad, but people call it the mad scene so let's use the moniker mad scene the way i think one of the most uh, uh mind bending things about that whole process that that mad scene is that he finishes the last things he sings is the note when it for, when he when it um uh is darkness to where night is turned today today and he lands if you've if you've got it right, he lands on the same E flat as the foghorn, and the foghorn just takes over from him, and you just and I've always sung that like as I get to that last E flat, I fall off it ever so slightly, and let it let it become the sound of the foghorn. I fall off the E flat and mm, just let it yeah. let it drop ever so slightly. Just down to that 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 the natural that the E flat fall, that the the E flat horn falls to the offstage horn falls to, uh, as well because I think it's it's him Grimes going back breaking down to the elements that spawned him the fog and and the sea and the rocks and the the tang salt you know the salt tang in the air I think he doesn't go mad and drown himself and drown as a human I think he disintegrates into the elements that spawned him you know grimes is such a fascinating character also i mean the slater libretto is is so much more visceral than than the original crab poem yes um you know it's from the burrow and grimes is much more of a one-dimensional character you know it's a villain first and foremost grimes the opera it's you know do you do you think grimes could exist without without his boat without his apprentice could he exist no i think it would i think there's one even even more important question to ask is could he exist if not for the resistance from the village Hmm. i think he exists only because there's something to rail against and which is why yeah. When when Balstrode says to him, she'd take you now, and he said, no, not for pity, because if he doesn't have a storm to scream into, then he ceases to exist. So he 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 he, he lives for the opposition. And when in that last act he just sings his name over and over and over and over and over and over again, he is emptying the shell of the maelstrom that is 
the grimes within. And when he sung his last grimes and he is empty, then the shell goes back to the elements. It's empty. There's nothing there anymore. The grimes that we've seen on stage doesn't exist. It's gone. The resistance is gone. Uh, he has no more fight left in him because the fight, he's literally vomited the words out of him. He just says it, Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes, 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 Grimes. He just says it. And, he just, and it's like, for me, when I'm performing it, it's like coughing up salt water when you've been dumped by a wave. Hmm. Washing that, up on the seas of all the yeah. And 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 he, and literally, he just he, he coughs that 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 name up until there is no more essence of Grimes left. And so when he goes out into that boat, he's he's just an elemental shell, and the Grimes has gone off and become the vapor. It's become that salt spray. It's become that gunmetal gray that Aldebra is. It's become that 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 whirling maelstrom of of, of sea of, of of ocean. It's gone back to the element that spawned it. So the shell itself is just the housing, and the housing goes back to the goes back to its elements. It gets worn away like the rock face does over thousands of years of, of salt spray. And then as soon as he's gone, the community reverts back into its placidity and like it never happened. Exactly. And and they talk about the ship sinking offshore. No, don't yep. don't mind those rumors. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's... one of the things I think is most important that comes out of that libretto uh, is that everybody, everybody in the village gets their turn in that ugly little spotlight. Yeah. Everybody. For, for worse. Yep. Balstrode gets it. Auntie gets it. The nieces get it. Bob Bowles gets Ellen it. Ellen certainly gets it. Ellen, Ellen gets it. Everyone gets their little uh, 15 minutes of fame in that horrid little spotlight. And they all make a tacit agreement. No one ever says it out loud. They all make a tacit agreement that for us to survive, we need to all focus on one. And Grimes is that one. And they all do it because they know that if they don't, they would tear themselves apart. It's so prescient considering where oh, we are. Just it's, you know, where the conversation started. It's a masterpiece oh. of of music theater. It is one of the greatest it's operas ever timeless. written. And certainly Absolutely. one of the greatest operas of the 20th century. I mean, up, up, yeah, I mean, up, up there with uh, Wozzeck, Lulu, and Rusalka. Exactly, exactly. You know, you know, I told you this, the first time I saw you was in Wozzeck. Um, uh, was it Santa Fe or New York? No, no, New York. I was a oh, senior in high school. 2011. We in, uh, exactly. The old production with, um, was Alan Held? Alan Held, yeah, exactly. And uh, Rusty Thomas. Exactly. Uh, and Valtrad Meyer and Jimmy Conducting. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, I remember That's that. That's a dream I had team so much right fun there. With that. that was so much fun to do. I had such a great time with that. Drum major for you. Yeah, tumble major, yeah, exactly. How, do, how does drum major fit in with the other characters you've played? How does Also, how does Berg's musical language fit in for you? Oh, I love it. I mean, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, particularly Wozzeck, because Wozzeck is well and truly not aleatoric and there's nothing chance about it. Um, and it's still, in lots of ways, quite tonal. Uh, you know, um, that, that, the, the, the drunk chorus, when he beats the living, when the drum major beats the living daylights out of Wozzeck in the pub scene, 
that the 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 the, the men's chorus they're humming drunk there is f sharp minor Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. Know, there it is. It's F sharp minor. Um, and and the higher papaya combine boob. Okay, it's it, it's not Pacini, but that's a that's a soaring melody. You know, it's it's every bit as melodious as anything Janáček wrote. Yeah, Berg for me is really someone who was able to take all of the sounds that were happening around him. I mean, you think of the Schoenberg Verein and you think mm -hmm. of all of the the ardent modernists, quote unquote, I hate that word, but yeah. um, he he was able to synthesize this musical product. Oh yeah, in absolutely. A, in a way that a lot of people were never able to. And where would where would have been the pub scene, particularly in act three of, of Grimes, with the off offstage banda, where would that have been without the, the pub scene in Wozzeck? Exactly. Exactly. That they, 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 if, if Wozzeck hadn't been happening in New York when Peter and Ben were there staying with Chet Kalman and W.H. Auden, if they weren't in New York and didn't go and see Wozzeck in New York, that whole scene in Peter Grimes would never have happened. In a million years, that wouldn't have happened. Definitely. And, I, I mean... They found the libretto there in in yeah. the United States. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, uh, it's we have this wealth of repertoire, and yeah, I have do. to thank you because no, not at all. You know, pleasure. You know, I I texted you this. Uh, you know how Spotify does the wrap up thing. You were yes. my third most listened to artist this year, my ah, friend. Ah, you need to get out more, <laughs> dude. I'm trying. We're in quarantine again. Oh, that's right. Yeah, California's gone back in the quarantine, except for Gav, because yeah, Gavin's having fabulous lunches at, at, at French Laundry. <laughs> uh, Sorry, and I could, London I, I, Breed I, too. Oh yes, that's right. Miss um, Breed was at at at, um, at, uh, at French. No, she was the well. French Laundry the following night. The, the, the next day, didn't learn from Gav's mistake. All right, fair enough. Well, one of the things I thought was most wonderful about about Gavin and Newsom's thing, well, you know, we sort of we sort of ended. I, I went to this thing by accident, like. You don't go from Sacramento to Napa Valley and go, oh, how do we end up at French Laundry? This thing, you know, you, that, that thing books out seven and eight months in advance. But the whole concept of like Governor Newsom just went out for a, went out for a gathering and didn't realize it was at French Laundry. You're like, yeah, I don't think anyone's going to buy that one, Gav. As fabulous as Gavin is, I don't think anyone's buying that. Yeah, the rules for thee, not for me. Yeah, well, it's it's and it's been happening all over the country uh, and in the United Kingdom as well. You just it's I don't know. It's it's one of those things, and, and I think it's most frustrating for those of us whose whose livelihoods have been shut down because not because we don't want to work and not because we can't, not because we're unwell. We're all ready to go, but our venues are closed. Exactly. I mean, look, I'm facing probably another round of cancellations here. Yeah, uh, because of this shutdown. Yeah, it's such a it's, shame. Yeah. It's such a shame. We've all in our own ways sort of meditated on this past year and mm -hmm. worked out a lot of our own existential crises given this, given our inability to produce our art for other people. Because like you were saying, you know, we're not performing in a vacuum. It's not like the first Miles Davis quintet when he like didn't acknowledge there being an audience presence we're doing this for ourselves yes to perform but like we're doing this to present a message that people need to hear yeah absolutely i mean it's it's um 
I, I was doing something similar uh, last week. Um, yeah, last week I, w- I had just come off stage from a rehearsal of Fidelio and I was joined by um, uh, Roderick Williams uh, and uh, Karina Kanalakis and um, Darren uh, Pene Patti, who, you know, obviously had a had heavily involved with San Francisco Opera there. Um, and we were talking about it and Roddy said something really, really quite wonderful. He said, you know, I've been looking at anything that's gone, that any opportunity that 2020 has put up for a performance or song or a recording or you know, something as a gift rather than looking at everything else as being the the worst case scenario. And exactly. I thought that was a really interesting way to, to think about it. And, I, and, I, and I've been forcing myself to think about it a little bit more in that particular way because I thought it was was a really lovely way to think about it. It said, look, you know, every opportunity we have to do anything, just, to, you know, in a room uh, with a camera and a piano player and make uh, Schoener Muller or, you know, um, whatever it is, I think that's a, to, to, to look at that opportunity as a gift in 2020, because we haven't had many. And I think that was a really lovely way to put it. So I'm, I'm doing my utmost to think of, I mean, we've officially just been told in the last hour that we our our production of Fidelio will be allowed to open tomorrow night here in in Asturias, in Oviedo. So that's I'm choosing to think of that as a gift, because it could have gone the other way. The 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 Department of Health here could have said, you know, we really don't think that we've got the infection rate or the transmission rate here quite as under control as we'd like, whatever under control means. Um, but they didn't. They've obviously made the, what they think is the best decision for the city, both in terms of health and its 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 physical health, and in terms of its economic viability. They've made the best decision available. So we've you know in the last hour we've got the official news that we can we're allowed to actually open uh, and perform tomorrow night. So I'm choosing, like Roderick said less than a week ago, I'm choosing to see that as a gift, and I'm going to celebrate that gift tomorrow by going on stage and. Um, singing Floristan for all my, for all I'm worth. Beautiful. Well, they're very lucky to hear you. Oh mate, it's such a great role. I do love singing it. I know that there's a page and a half of that aria that gets us a little bit awkward. I get it. Um, but it's such a, apart from that stretto, it really is a beautifully written role. And I know that page and a half is a, is, is a little awkward. But apart from that, it really is just sublime music. It's Beethoven at his, at his, it is at his finest. Um, and as we know, he he went over it and reviewed it a number of times. So it was it was Beethoven at what he thought was his finest as well. So I'm prepared to go with him on that one and, <laughs> and give him the credit due. <laughs> well, you certainly deserve a lot too. Um, I wanted to ask you about. Beethoven, because you've performed the ninth, you've done Floristan a number of times, mm-hmm. you've done the Mrs. Solemnis. I have indeed, yes. So for you, you know, the, the common trope of Beethoven not being the greatest vocal composer, uh, you know, the commonality of, of choruses having to, quote unquote, bark out uh, chorus parts in the ninth and certain sections of the Mrs. Solemnis. Where does that fit for you? Do you do you hold the same view? No. Other than the page I, and the half? No, I, but the page and the half is awkward, but it's not impossible. You know, I mean, there are some parts of um, the tenor solos, parts in, in Mahler's, Mahler's Eighth Symphony that are very awkward, but not impossible. 
And there are some chorus stuff in, in Mahler that is awkward, but not impossible. And Mahler, like Beethoven before him, does often require, require vocal soloists to perform like instrumental soloists. And that's not, and it's a challenge. Sure, it's a challenge. Is it any more of a challenge than singing Schrecker or Die Tote Stadt, for instance? I mean, that stuff is really, really awkwardly written. And yet we only seem to think that Beethoven was, Beethoven was the only one that wrote awkwardly for the voice. Uh, you know, uh, there's a recording just recently out uh, on social media of Pene Pati, we just talked about, singing the, that impossibly beautiful, but damn near impossible to sing, um, tenor aria from uh, Mitridate, Re di Ponto. I mean, that's awkward for the voice. It certainly would be awkward for my voice, but Pene sings the daylights out of it. So, you know, what's awkward for one is not awkward for, 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 for others. Beethoven was was composing the lot. I mean, the, the older he got, the, the, and the, the more his hearing left him, he must have been composing for the sensation through the instrument, through the piano, or through the floor, through his feet, rather than what he was hearing, because it got to the point where he really wasn't hearing very much. So he was up going for the vibration of something, and of course that means there's there's a certain intensity, uh, vocally and instrumentally, uh, that you need to achieve for the vibrations to make something solid like a piano or make the floor move. So I understand that that's part of the, probably part of the equation, but is it awkward? Sure, it's awkward. But the awkward parts really are, to be honest, few and far between, and ultimately they're manageable. And the stuff that isn't awkward is, I mean, you, that, that whole final chorus before it gets into the Veres Haldan, Veren Haldes Viper Woman, yeah, or Gott Veren Augenblick. I mean, that is just so beautifully written for every singer, not only the chorus, but all of the solo instruments, the oboe and that, that have these little solo lines, but all of the soloists, it's beautifully written. It's as beautifully written as Tutti Contenti or Tutti Contenti at the end of Marriage of Figaro, for me. Completely agree. Completely agree. And it's as beautiful as, as any of the Bach, the huge opening and ending Bach choruses in any of the Passions. Definitely. You know, you mentioned Figaro, and this is one, you know, a lot of people put Figaro in this sort of product of revolutionary enlightenment that I think actually Fidelio deserves because I agree. Alma, Viva, Alma Viva is still count at the end. They're still yes. living under the subjugation of serfdom. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. You know, Pizarro is defeated. Yeah, absolutely. Pizarro loses. You know, um, and 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 he, and of course, uh, Don Fernando, whether he's fully genuine or not, and I don't think it really matters. But Don Fernando arrives and he says, uh, 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 "A brother seeks his brothers, and where he can help, then I am happy to help." And I think that's a, a wonderful message to have. Uh, and as a result, the tyrant, or at least the tyrant in this particular story, um, gets his comeuppance. Uh, and and the hero, and I think, to be honest, it's the heroine of the story, really, her sacrifice is validated and vindicated. Absolutely. Going back to it not being about war in the Janissary section of the ninth, I'm curious because you also mentioned Mahler, who's a composer you've performed quite a bit of as well. Yeah. And you just, didn't you just do Das Lied von der Erde in Dallas? Dallas, in, in, the, in, oh. the, chamber, in the chamber version, yeah. Yeah. Where does Mahler fit in for you? How, does, how do you 
how do you personally relate to the theatricality or non-theatricality of this incredible composer being an opera star on all definitions? I, I wear my love for Mahler on my sleeve. I don't. Uh, I don't try to hide my hide my dev my devotion and adoration of of Gustav Mahler in any way, shape, manner, or form because I'm just not that good a liar. It would be obvious that you'd, you'd see it. I think everything he turned his hand to as a symphonist is, at least for me, probably the zenith of symphonic writing. Um, for me, it's 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 a very close call between him and Bruckner. For me, well, see, that's the thing. I think, for me, the, the 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 holy trinity for symphonic writing for me has always been Bruckner, Mahler, and and Sibelius. A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent. But they couldn't have done what they did in terms of just the un the, that constant uh, un uh, that real that that silver thread of development had had Beethoven not become before them, exactly. and had had not Brahms taken up and Schubert and Schumann taken up that 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 uh, that baton that was handed to them by Brahms and then and then we get uh, Bruckner, Mahler and Sibelius I mean they're all very very different composers all trying to say very very different things with their music but there is something about those three but Mahler for Alm that I just if I if 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 there was one composer that I had to by law be restricted to listen to for the rest of my life it would be a very very easy choice <laughs> it's it's pretty astounding i mean for right. me for me mahler um i sort of divide the symphonies you know three ways uh, not the normal three periods everything he's he started with from when he was you know a late teenager early 20 year old writing these pieces for the first time um all that comes to a head I, for me in the seventh. Yep. Then the eighth is its own thing. Then the ninth is its own thing. But I think the seventh is this crown jewel that does not get talked about enough. No. Absolutely wild and yeah. so spiritually transcendent. Yeah, I agree. And and, and I, I've always, I've never quite understood why uh, Mala six is is treated as 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 the depressing one. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, listen, if you put in the third hammer stroke, you're kind of tempting fate there. Well, yeah, I agree. But I mean, the, every, but the whole thing about Mahler symphonies is that there's always a little bit part, there's always a part of each of those symphonies that's a bit of a downer. Yeah. And there's a sort of macabre <clears throat> laugh about it, too. Yeah. I mean, think of think of just the tempo marking or the the the, the movement marking of Rondo Burlesque as a yes. philosophical concept, right? Yeah, Absolutely. There's always this sort of cabaret, macabre laughter, even yeah, in I, the face of utter desperation and turmoil. Yeah, I know. It, I, 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 I literally, we could have done a whole podcast just on my love of Mahler. Well, um, that means no, we have to do another one. Well, gosh, I, I think I've probably outworn my welcome, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, listen, my friend. <laughs> but I've got to say, Mahler, for me, Bruckner, and I know that Bruckner is a little bit more, what's the word? Uh... People can be more ambivalent about Bruckner. He tends to polarize a little bit more um, in a way that I don't think Mahler does. Uh, but there is something about Bruckner's constant yearning for, uh, I mean, 
there's something there's something that's just that that always seems slightly unfulfilled about Bruckner. I mean those 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 dotted rhythms that that, that yeah those those big dotted rhythms bum 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 that draw themselves out to an almost stop and then just leave off. And exactly, and then, it's like he's constantly Exactly. And one of the what, was that David Robertson yeah. said something really lovely. I was he was doing Bruckner Seven at the Edinburgh Festival years ago, and I was I'd been seeing earlier in the evening, and I went and got went back to the hotel just across the street and got changed into something more comfortable than the black and whites, and came and sat up next to David while Yuzhi Bielachlavek conducted Bruckner Seven, and David said something so beautifully succinct and and yet witty. He said that the great thing about Bruckner is if there's a little phrase or a hook you liked, don't worry, he probably liked it and he'll bring it back. Exactly. It's, and it's organ improv. Yeah, I just I just love listening to Bruckner symphonies. Um, the first version of the fourth, which really gets short shrift, everyone does the revised version now. I think the first version of the fourth symphony is, is glorious in its extravagance. Um, it is... In a way, he was to composers what I think Bernstein was to conductors. There was never a there was never a lily he couldn't gild. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I and, and I think the thing about Bruckner is you have to kind of embrace that. You have to. It's no point trying to be austere with it, because I think it it short changes the music. Bruckner is a little bit over the top. It it is a bit the lily being gilded. Then embrace it. I mean, the, the whole that the that that opening string motif uh, in uh, Brook the Nine. Bum 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 bum. Bagadam I mean, th that's got to have a real edge to it. You know, it's got to drive. In the same way that the opening, the opening three those those big three big brass notes in the opening of of, of uh, Forza del Destino, Verdi, bam, 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 they've got to they've got to grab you by the throat and tear you around a little bit. Um, but yeah, Bruckner, Mahler, and and Sibelius, and Sibelius for his ability to just literally be the very very first uh, cine cinematographic composer that wanted to do nothing but landscapes. It's really remarkable because his orchestration, you hear you hear it's Sibelius with two notes. Yeah. With two notes. Just how he was able to use the instruments, use these colors, and you immediately see the vision yeah. of what he, he was experiencing during the time. I mean, he was in Italy during the second symphony. Yeah. What do you have? You have Lake Como yep. and you have Italian opera. Just yeah, exactly. distilled in this perfect, perfect language. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just every time I every time I listen to Sibelius, I think that he was to composing what Richard Avedon was to um, landscape photography. Incredible comparison, you know? Huh? He he just he 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 was able to evoke a, a panorama, a scenic panorama, orchestrally better than any composer in the history of composing. And I know that that Germans have always said, whether they believe it, I've never really got to the bottom of this. Um, Germans always think that Sibelius is depressing. So it's Sibelius doesn't get performed in Germany as often as, as it might. But I don't know who decided that it was depressing and I don't know who was then started to teach everyone that it was depressing because I don't... I mean, you hear those, that, uh, in, in, um, that, that wonderful 
uh, melody in the in the in the last move. Da 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 yum ba-dum. and that ba 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 from the low brass. And then the ba 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 in the low brass. How could that be anything but uplifting? Exactly. Exactly. Maybe it's not as devoutedly outpouring of emotion, but it's so so heartwarming. And even yeah. if you know there there are some recordings that take it a bit faster in tempo, a little bit more on edge. Like yep. uh, I think of uh, Jimmy Levine with Berlin. That sure. recording is stupendous, but it's it's got a, a different bite, a different sort of energy. Yeah, um, I mean, it's I, I, still I, so incredibly invigorating. I I love Colin Davis's with Boston. Oh, Colin Davis is like par excellence with Sibelius. Same with yeah, that, that, the Colin Davis with with Boston is, was was absolutely remarkable. Um, you know, but, but you know, even the even the bits that are, are a little bit more ominous, da da bum bum bum. You know, but but that whole bum 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 bum. I mean, Beethoven did it. Wagner borrowed it. You know, it it was it, it's. I don't know. I, I find Sibelius just just such incre- I find it uplifting music. I know that I may be in the minority there, but I really do. I find Sibelius really quite uplifting. Um, in the same way that I find Mahler and 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 Bruckner uplifting. You know, um, definitely. Even the fourth. Oh, absolutely. The fourth, I the fourth is my personal favorite. I know, yeah. uh, you know, the the seventh holds a special place too. But the fourth, for me, it's, you know, it it yeah. descends into this dark place only for us to come out on the other end. Oh, the other other end, and that's one of the things I love about Sibelius Seven is that it it it, 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 it's, it the, it's the distilled essence of symphony. You know, it's one movement, but those little that little trip rhythm, da da yum, ba dum bum. I just there's just something about Sibelius that really just grabs me, it grabs me inside and sort of like messes around a little bit. And that's why I listen to the music I listen to. I don't want to be listened. I never want to be pacified. I don't want to be calmed down. I don't want to be soothed in any way. I want to be emotionally involved. I want to be, I want the music to get into my head and my, and my, and, and my body and, and leave me changed. That is that is exactly what we all aspire to, and you've that, changed I, a lot of people with your music too. Well, I think we that's the thing. Is, is that's the that's the thing. I think I, I've over time I've managed to find though that handful of roles that would do it to me as an audience member, and I've just had the very good fortune to perform them. So I try to let that that music that as an audience member it would do it to me anyway to let it do that let it do that to me as a singer as a performer and then let the audience live it with me you know so it's not really my music it's i mean the music's there the music but i've tried to let the way it affects me take the audience along on the journey with me at the same time and get them to look at the glory and look into the abyss in the same way that i get to look at the glory and look into the abyss in whatever I'm doing. And thankfully so. Well, oh, man. Stuart, I don't want to take your whole night, no, but I do have one pleasure, last mate. question for you. Yes, sir. I've... When are we going to hear the Stuart Skelton version of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You? Oh, we are not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are not going to hear a Stuart Skelton version of anything. I, d- I don't think Stuart Skelton is built for crossover, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> I've never really given it any thought. And I... And in, and look, I've got to be honest with you, if you've got the Mariah Carey version, why would you mess with perfection? 
Amen. Amen. Honestly, I mean that, that. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. That, yeah, apart from um, Elvis Christmas album and Ella, Wiz- Ella wishes you a swing in Christmas, and all of the um, Capitol Records Christmas cocktails uh, records and stuff. Um, the that 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 song at home is on constant rotation from December the first. Totally. I totally. mean, that, yeah. If you, if you're gonna do Christmas camp, then do it Mariah Carey style. Amen to that. All right, Stuart, <laughs> Amen, brother. Stuart, it is always such a pleasure. Thank you Most so much. Pleasure, my friend. Absolutely, not a problem. And uh, and toy 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 on tomorrow. And do let me know how it goes. Yeah, we will. I mean, we're so pleased now to have the official word that the butterfly performance and that the butterfly performances and the Fidelity performances can go ahead. Everyone, it's great for the theater. I think it's great for the opera company. I think it's will it be broadcasted. I don't think so, but don't quote me. It may be. Uh, I think it's great for it sounds great for the city of Oviedo that that, that their, their cultural life is back, uh, and that people can now you know really take part in it again. So very pleased to have to be here when when there's some good news around. Well, thank God. And when all of everything comes down, uh, I'll come give you a hug in person in Reykjavik. Mate, I can't wait, brother. I cannot wait. Each work of art. Each artist, each person, is another brick laid upon the choices, voices, and experiences of the past. Join me next week as we continue our journey to uncover what's not there.